0: Uh, this evening you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and you'll find our text tonight, which is all of 1 Samuel chapter 3 on page 227. And so let me begin our time by reading these 21 verses for us and asking for the Lord's blessing and uh, then we'll continue on in our meditation on this wonderful text. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through his wonderful word. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. And so he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him the Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you, And more also, if you hide anything from me, all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you are a God that speaks to your beloved servants. And we pray even this evening that you would speak to us, that we might listen to your word as it's found in your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It was over a decade ago that a professor at a mainline seminary was asked the question of what is needed in faithful church leadership to be effective in the 21st century. And this mainline seminary professor penned an article where he gave 12 characteristics that he thought would be required in faithful pastors ministering in our time and space here in America and as he spun out those answers he said some things like what we need most is is pastors who can establish a church that functions as a mission outpost in another place the Seminary professor said that what the church needs most is leaders who can creatively engage church congregations in experiential worship services. And in another place, he said he needed to be able, the church leader, to lead the congregation into the world of technology that belonged to the 21st century. And then around point five or six, I think he simply said uh, the leader needs to be able to develop and communicate a vision And if you just stopped right there and didn't look at his explanation, you could wonder that he might be actually after something rather biblical. Because again, if you look at our text before us tonight, the principal problem in chapter 3 is that there was no frequent vision. But as we're going to see along the way this evening, and as is true throughout the Old Testament, vision through the prophets was equivalent to and synonymous with the Lord's word. That what Israel so desperately needed was the Lord's word. And if you just carefully combed your way through this seminary professor's 12 points and characteristics that were needed in church leaders today in order to be efficient, what you would find is there wasn't a single mention of the primacy and priority of preaching Christ in his word of the gospel rooting and centering a congregation on the very word of God that alone can give life. And so perhaps it's not even that surprising to know that he serves in a mainline denomination that's only a couple of decades away from dying for his church. The seminary professor, his, his church has a famine in the word. And that's what struck the land of Israel at this time where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 3. There's a famine in the land. They actually are experiencing something later on. The prophet Amos will declare at the Lord's word because of their unrepentant sin. Eventually, Amos comes along and says that the Lord has decreed that there's going to be a famine in the land. And as that prophecy goes, it's not going to be a famine of bread, a famine related to water. It's going to be a famine of hearing God's word. That people might go from north and south and east to west, as the text says, they might run to and fro, but the word of the Lord is not going to be found in the land. As such was the case in Israel at this time, there's no word of God. There's a, a famine in the land. And it's reminding us that there's this perennial reality in any part of God's people that what they so desperately need, first and foremost... As the Lord's word, that without the word of the Lord in the life of the people, congregations tend to run amuck and run astray. Without the word of the Lord in the life of his beloved people, souls tend to shrivel and shrink. But there's good news in First Samuel chapter three, because the Lord has purposed, as we even just read, He's purposed, hasn't he? To speak again to his people. So I want you to see from start to finish in this text how the land goes from famine in spiritual food to fullness as the word of the Lord goes throughout the land. And it gives us our theme tonight of the Lord speaks to his servants. It's got three simple parts, our text does. So I want to show you three ways in which the Lord speaks to his servants. He speaks repeatedly, definitively, and graciously to his people. And so just to make sure that we catch up with where we left off last week, in chapter 2 we saw that Eli's house was about ready to fall apart at the Lord's word. That he had these two sons that were ministering priests in the Lord's place of worship. And they were so full of corruption that this unnamed prophet came along and spoke this word of condemnation because of their actions in the place of God's worship. So if you look back to chapter 2, verse 17, you understand the depth of the problem when it simply says, the sin of the young man, this is Eli's sons, was very great in the sight of the Lord, for they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. And because of that contempt, because of that corruption, the Lord promises to end Eli's house. So that's when we come to chapter 3 of 1 Samuel Uh, The question before the original hearers and readers was, who's the next priest in God's house? Is the priestly family is ending, who's going to be the next priest in God's place? Is there going to be a priest-like prophet in God's nation? And what we find as the text opens is that that priest who is soon to come is somewhat ironically enough, in Eli's house. So let's notice, first of all, the Lord speaks repeatedly. Because again, you'll see verse 1 of chapter 3, the boy Samuel was ministering in the presence of Eli, ministering to the Lord. And it's not exactly clear how old Samuel would have been at this moment. Most Old Testament scholars would seemingly put him around the age of 12, At this moment, so it gives you something of a picture for the ensuing scene. Because on that climactic night in Samuel's life, what we go on to find in the ensuing text is that Eli and Samuel—they're in their normal positions where they're sleeping. But verse two has warned us: notice that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow so dim he could not see, even though, of course, he's lying down there in his own place and that physical reality of being blind. It's also a spiritual parable in Eli's life. We've already seen, haven't we, by this point in the story, uh, that that Eli is is blind to the reality of the spirituality before him. You might remember how in the very first chapter, he, he couldn't see the fervent devotion of faithful Hannah. Confused her for a worthless woman, and nor could he see those worthless scoundrels that were his sons in chapter 2. And here is the spiritual leader of God's people, and he's altogether blind, not just physically, but also spiritually. We're meant to see there, it's a nighttime scene. All is dark, but there is a shining light. You notice what verse 3 says, "...the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the Lord's temple." It's surely no accident in this moment of surrounding darkness, physically and spiritually, that we're reminded there in the Lord's house. A light does shine. Hope is not yet extinguished in the land. And of course, it's not extinguished because God is going to speak, speak repeatedly to his servants. So, as we just read, the story goes quite simply, doesn't it? Uh, young Samuel hears the Lord's voice calling. He runs off to Eli and says, here I am, you called me. And Eli says, no, I didn't, go back to bed. And then it happens a second time. And it happens a third time. And by the third time, Eli is finally realizing that it's the Lord speaking to young Samuel. So again, if you look down at verse 9, he commands him to go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And, of course, the Lord comes again, and Samuel says in verse 10, Speak, for your servant hears. And the text has already told us exactly why it is that Samuel can't recognize the Lord's voice. Because if you look at verse 7, it says, He did not yet know the Lord. Uh, which is a rather stunning statement to make about Samuel, because it was used of the worst, worthless sons in chapter 2, that Hophni and Phineas these scoundrel-like sons of Eli, that they did not know the Lord. And we talked about last week, didn't we, how this was just a simple phrase used throughout the Old Testament to mark off rank unbelief and ignorance of God. Even Pharaoh used it when he was confronted by Moses in Exodus, where Pharaoh says, what do I know anything about Yahweh? I don't know the Lord. But if you look again at verse 7, it repeats a word twice, that does have much hope in it. You notice that children and students. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And isn't one of the glories of the way in which God speaks to his beloved children. Is that he's called them to himself. He speaks. And speaks. And speaks again. He might not yet know the Lord, but the Lord had purpose that he would know the Lord, and so what happens? <clears throat> the Lord speaks, and surely that ought to be a comfort to many of you. Perhaps you think of a grandchild or a child, and they have rejected the Lord's word over and over and over. Might it not be in the Lord's economy and providence that he has said, <clears throat> you will know me? It's just not yet. That you're going to hear. Or perhaps you could even be sitting here tonight and the Lord has spoken to you over and over and over. And maybe even tonight it's your yet moment. He did not know the Lord yet. The Lord speaks repeatedly. And secondly, the Lord speaks definitively. Because you notice verse 11, we're told that Samuel hears from the Lord. Behold. I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. So children and students, if you can picture a scene perhaps in your own life or perhaps even in maybe something you've seen in a movie where a terrifying reality comes, confronts the conscience to such a degree that someone asks when they see you all terrified and all frightened, what's going on, what's wrong, and you have no ability, it seems like, to even communicate that word of terror. Well, that's what's happening here in the Lord's tingling word that comes to Samuel. And the tingling word is actually just the word that was used by this unnamed prophet in the previous passage, because he's simply saying, isn't he, that he's going to bring an end to Eli's house. And look at verse 13 to find out why, once again. He says, I'm going to punish Eli's house. All of Israel's going to know it for the iniquity that Eli knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. It's one of the more striking parenting principles in the Old Testament. From leaders that are priests, from leaders that are kings, and when their family goes astray, it almost universally seems like in the Old Testament. At its core, according to the Lord's adjudication and judgment of the household is that fathers did not restrain the sin of their children. There's a grace, isn't there, parents, we know, in laboring in the Spirit's power with the Spirit's help, aiming by the power of His Word to restrain sin through warnings, through exhortations, through corrections. And what principally so often belongs to this Old Testament pattern that eventually creates the nation spinning out of control is that fathers did not restrain Their children, just let them do whatever their little hearts wanted. And before you know it, a few generations away, it seems like all is lost. And so he says, doesn't he, verse 14, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli, the iniquity of Eli's house, shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Eli's house had reached the point of no return. The Lord doesn't promise to strive with his people forever. Understandably, for however young Samuel was, He's scared to deliver this word to Eli. But as the text continues, and we find out that Eli in the morning is urgent, he's clear. Tell me what the Lord said. Otherwise, may it be done to you what he has said. And then Samuel speaks that word of judgment to Eli. And Eli concludes, notice the end of verse 18. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I think there's also this literary significance that belongs to verse 15 where it says that Samuel opened the doors of the house of the Lord as we're soon going to see. It's even through his very mouth it seems like the Lord is going to open the doors of revelation to the people there in Israel because he speaks repeatedly. He speaks definitively. But but we'll notice in this last few verses in our chapter he speaks graciously. Because look at verse 19. Samuel grew. The Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. All of Israel, you'll notice verse 20, knew that Samuel was established as the Lord's prophet. And if you just glance into the first part of chapter 4, what does it say? But the word of Samuel came to all Israel, a land that was in famine. It's now a land in fullness because God has spoken through his priestly prophet And it's been all of grace, isn't it? It's clear according to the way this story has gone that there's nothing within Samuel that has in any way earned that role of being a priestly prophet. Of course, it's the Lord's grace to speak through Samuel. It's the Lord's grace to call Samuel. It's the Lord's grace to establish Samuel. And isn't it always that way with God's people? The Lord's grace to call you to himself. The Lord's grace for his presence to be with you. The Lord's grace to establish you in the work to which he has called you, whatever your vocation might be. The Lord speaks graciously to his beloved servants. Many of you know the name of Martin Luther and he was even in his own time, regarded as something of a Reformation celebrity. So you can find uh, sometimes these things that he wrote or things that he said that seemed to poke fun at this whole idea that Martin Luther was a big deal. And one of the more famous times that he did this was in a sermon to his congregation where he talked about everyone is remarking in the land of everything Martin Luther has done for uh, Reformation. And he famously says in this quote that's often repeated, he says, All I did was sleep and drink beer with my friends. The word did all the work. And that's where usually the famous quotation ends. But here's actually how he spun it forward a little bit further with his people. He said, What do you dis- suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game the poor fools are up to now. What does he mean? What do you think Satan feels like when man comes with their great ideas about how to bring reformation in the church? What is needed in church leaders today to bring efficient ministry in the 21st century? Hey, he goes on to say, but when we spread the word alone and let it alone do the work; it distresses Satan, for it is Almighty, and the Word takes hearts captive. And I trust you see that's what we're going to begin to see in the nation of Israel in First Samuel is that the Word of God is going to consistently and powerfully begin to take hearts captive, because the Lord loves to speak to His beloved servants. So, as we close, let me just mention two final parts that this text calls to mind by way of exhortation the first is this you need the word it's not a revolutionary exhortation is it or a statement that is unusually full of perspective and insight it's just the simple reality of you need the word what does israel need before it gets its leader before it gets its organization Before it gets its permanent dwelling place of God in the land, what does Israel need but the Lord's Word? Certainly in our nation, many people today are asking, what does America need most? What does the church need most? And many different answers are often given. And if you have ears to hear and some degree of insight and wisdom into the answers that are given, you realize that they so often fall short of the simple biblical truth. But what you need most is the Lord's Word, applied by the Lord's Spirit to your heart and soul, you need the word. Number two is that you need God's Son. You need God's Son because the text tells us that in those days there was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare. We know in the fullness of God's revelation that we no longer live at any time where we could say that is true of our time and space. The word of the Lord is rare, because what does the author to the Hebrews tell us? But that in these last days, God has spoken to us by His beloved Son. He who is the exact imprint of His nature, the radiance of His glory. There's no such thing anymore as a famine of the word in the world. There may be a famine of listening, though, to the word that is being spoken in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we say that what we need most is God's word, what we're saying, of course, is what we need most is to hear and heed that command of our Father in heaven that we would listen to his beloved Son. Because it's in his beloved Son that God, of course, still speaks repeatedly to his servants, definitively to his servants. And praise the Lord, he speaks graciously to his servants. Let's pray together. Father, we simply ask that you would give us ears to hear, that we would not only hear your word, that we would obey it with our whole hearts and find its promised blessing that you have attached to it, that we might know the life that's found in your Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.